You're listening to a Women's History Association of Ireland podcast. In this podcast, a paper from Besieged Bodies, Gendered Violence, Sexualities and Motherhood, the Women's History Association of Ireland's annual conference for 2020-2021. This online conference took place on four Fridays in March 2021 and was supported by the UCD Decade of Centenaries Fund, the UCD School of History, the UCD School of Gender Studies, UCD Centre for Gender Feminisms and Sexualities and the UCD College of Arts and Humanities Fund. This podcast is produced in association with History Hub. To listen to other papers and conference keynotes, go to historyhub.ie. The WHAI conference was organised by Dr Mary McAuliffe from UCD Gender Studies and Dr Fanula Walsh from UCD School of History. This podcast features a paper from Narratives of Gendered Sexual Violence in Modern Ireland, which was a UCD Decade of Centenaries funded panel. The first paper in the panel was given by Susan Byrne from Trinity College Dublin. The paper was entitled Keeping Company with the Enemy, Gender and Sexual Violence During the Irish War of Independence and the Civil War, 1919-1923. Well, thanks everyone for joining us again on the fourth Friday of what has been four great Fridays so far. Um, We've, I'm just going to introduce our panel on gendered and sexual violence. Um, four speakers whose work I personally really, really admire and um, I'm sure you'll enjoy what they have to say. Um, so we'll start with Susan Byrne. Uh, Susan is a third year PhD student at Trinity College Dublin and a 2019 Government of Ireland Postgraduate Awardee. Her research area is women's experience of the free state justice system, 1922 to 1937. She completed a joint honours BA in history and linguistics at the University College Dublin in 2016. Her her paper is based on her MA thesis, which was completed in 2017, also at UCD. An essay based on this work was awarded the 2017 McCurtain Cullen Prize in Irish Women's History from the Women's History Association of Ireland. Susan's article entitled Keeping Company with the Enemy, Gender and Sexual Violence Against Women During the Irish War of Independence and Civil War was published in Women's History Review in 2020. So take it away, Susan. First of all, uh, good morning, everybody. And um, I'd like to thank Mary and Fanula and the WHAI for arranging an amazing conference. The lineup has been a who's who of women's history. And I was just saying earlier, I don't know what I'm going to do now for April to be quite miserable. My paper today explores sexual and gender violence during the revolutionary period, 1919 to 1923, a time marked in Ireland by revolution, civil war and violent upheaval. Traditionally, this time frame is treated as two separate conflicts, a war of independence and a civil war. However, focusing on gender and sexual violence undermines traditional this traditional delineation and therefore I feel it is more appropriate to look at this period as one characterized by violence, chaos and increased threats against personal safety. Violence against women, both sexual and gender, invariably plays a role in war situations with women falling victim to occupying and vengeful armies time and again. We need only look at war zones around the world today to see that this is a terrifying reality for thousands of women. Based on this, it seems reasonable to believe that the situation in Ireland from 1919 to 23 would reflect this pattern. The revolutionary period was, by definition, violent, and according to Marie Coleman, the violence experienced by women in Ireland during the years 1919 to 1921 
can be categorized as physical, psychological, gendered, and sexual. A contemporary report to the Irish White Cross maintained that women and children were in a constant state of depression and nervous breakdown. Indeed, Elizabeth Keogh notes that eight women were admitted to Grange Gorman Mental Asylum in late 1922 with shock listed as the supposed cause of insanity. Women particularly knew that it was during curfew hours attempts of a sexual nature would be made. And Joseph Miller has noted, regardless of whether the threat of rape is real or imagined, it causes great distress because the pervasive fear of rape is as potentially damaging mentally as rape itself. A small number of sexual assault cases during this time frame have been well documented. One such case was that of Nora Healy. She recalled how her attacker caught hold of me and pushed me back into the kitchen and closed the door. In spite of my every resistance, he then succeeded in criminally assaulting and raping me. The level of detail contained in Mrs. Healy's statement is highly unusual, and Louise Ryan suggests that the reason she, along with a number of other women, bravely risked the shame of breaking the taboo on such sexual experiences was that these women had told their families, and she views this support as crucial to their public statements. The Irish Bulletin, ever alert to a propaganda game, also claimed to have evidence of other attacks. However, the women were not willing to publish their names and addresses. Contemporary reports indicate a belief that there were more attacks, but they remained unreported owing to the natural reticence of Irish women to talk about such matters. And this reticence was nothing new. In relation to the 1641 depositions, Jane Allmeyer has noted that the commissioners recording the testimonies reflected on the rare mention of rapes, and they argued that the absence of reports should not be seen as evidence that this bar barbarous outrage did not occur. Speaking out then, as during the revolutionary period, had consequences, and so caution is advised. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Indeed, Linda Connolly argues that the assertion that sexual assault was rare has not been adequately proven. The rest of this paper focuses on gender violence and illustrates how it was used as a form of discipline and control, conforming with Elizabeth Heinemann's notion of insider violence. According to Heinemann, this violence only has resonances in conflict, as it is used in that context to effectively cut the victim off from her own community. IRA witness statements from the Bureau of Military History suggest that gender violence, such as haircutting, was the prescribed punishment for girls who kept company with enemy troops. James Maloney, an IRA battalion adjutant, recalled how some girls created a problem. The British uniform was an attraction for them, as indeed with any uniform. They could be a real danger to the movement and gave bad example by consorting with the enemy. They were warned repeatedly and stronger measures had to be resorted to. No volunteer liked the job, but on occasions these girls' hair had to be cut. Years later, Dame Fashion was to dictate bobbed hair, but at this period of revolution, it was deemed shameful. Based on newspaper coverage alone, most of this form of violence was perpetrated in 1920. In my research, I found that 42 women had their, hair, their heads shorn in 1920, with only a further seven until the end of hostilities in 1923. And this form of gender violence was not confined to one side. While Elizabeth Bloxham, a member of the executive Man, observed that these were the days when girls were roughly searched and had their hair cut off by British soldiers, in my research, women were more likely to have their hair shorn by nationalist forces. Of the 50 women attacked from 1919 to 1923, six can be ascribed to British forces, while 31 can be attributed to nationalists. 
Newspaper coverage of such incidents was generally in the form of bulletins. For example, this one from the Cork Examiner. Young girl's hair cut off. The house of a young girl living in the Dungarvan district was entered by five masked men on Thursday night. The young girl was in bed, but they took her up and bringing her to an outhouse, they cut off her hair. Having accomplished the work, they left. It is said the reason for the outrage is that the young girl was friendly with soldiers. This format, short, sharp and to the point, underlined the warning implicit in the attack. Such acts of violence were usually carried out at night when maximum terror could be achieved. The men were usually masked to maintain their anonymity, but from the victim's point of view, this only served to heighten the terror of their experience. In her 1929 novel, The Last September, which is set during the War of Independence, Elizabeth Bowen offers an insight into the effect such attacks had on communities. On hearing of an attack on three local women, Lois, who had a romantic interest in a British soldier, is asked by her uncle, how would you like it if such a thing was to happen to you? Her aunt observes that masked men would be a very nasty experience for a girl of your age. Lois replies dramatically, I should be bobbed, and says she would prefer they were masked, as then she would be less embarrassed in the event of meeting them afterwards. This comment reflected the reality that these attackers were operating in their own communities and that the victim was very likely to encounter her attacker again. In several cases, the assailants reportedly did not wear a mask, indicating confidence that the attack would not be reported. One newspaper reported that no arrests had been made as, although the girls probably knew the men engaged in the attack, they refused to give the names or any information to the police. It appears that local acceptance, approval and indeed fear ensured that such operations were not interfered with and reprisal was of course a very real possibility. In 1920, very shortly after a young woman reported her attack to the police, the creamery, cheese house together with valuable machinery as well as two dwelling houses were completely destroyed by bombs and fire. Recently I came across this item which is on display at the National Museum of Ireland as part of their Women in the Irish Wars exhibition. The letter reads, herewith envelope containing the pigtail of girl's hair taken when Michael Barry was arrested on the 31st of December 1920. When asked at his trial about it, Barry, brother of Kevin Barry, claimed it was from an aunt of his who had decided to become a nun. He later admitted that it came from a woman who had had her head shaved during the War of Independence. Nicole Mott observes that in the context of violent behaviour, Keeping a part of the victim as a trophy represents power over the individual. While we cannot know what Barry was thinking, we do know he kept this woman's hair, quite probably in his pocket. I now want to look at an incident which became known as the Ken Mayer case. It was, a high prof it was high profile and I want to explore what it reveals about the contemporary political and military response to cases of gender violence. I first came across it as an example cited to illustrate the problem of serious indiscipline in the Free State Army by the spring of 1923. While the National Army had been charged with supporting the Free State Government, defending the institutions established by the Anglo-Irish Treaty and putting down anti-treaty forces, by the end of the Civil War, lack of discipline within the Army was viewed as a serious problem. As its name suggests, this incident occurred in Kenmare County Kerry on the 2nd of June 1923 and involved an attack on two young women, Florence, aged 21, and Jesse, 18. The attackers were allegedly three Free State officers, Captain Flood, Captain Clark, and most crucially, Major General O'Daly, General Officer in Command in Kerry. The girl's father, Dr. Randall McCarthy, described how Florence 
was confronted by three masked and armed men, one of whom seized her and covered her with a revolver and flashed an electric torch in her face. When she screamed, her little sister ran from her own bedroom to the rescue. One of the three rushed up the stairs and dragged Jessie down the stairs by her hair and out of doors. Here she was beaten with a Sam Brown belt, kicked and trodden on by two of the brutes. Other accounts add that their hair was covered with some objectionable form of grease. A military inquiry was held on the 28th of June to establish the facts of the case. Dr McCarthy referred to this as a sort of inquiry, during which O'Daly was allowed to make the most insulting and absurd allegations about me and my family, thus out of his own mouth supplying motive for the outrage. And immediately after the inquiry, my witnesses were all arrested by order of a major of General Daly. Threats of violence, including death threats, were also made against witnesses. The Army's Judge Advocate General, Kerr Davis, described the incident as a blackguardly outrage. In his opinion, the facts established by the inquiry included a prima facie case against the three officers of having committed serious criminal offences and having been guilty of very scandalous conduct, unbecoming the character of officers. He advised that all three be ordered for, court, for trial by court-martial on charges to be framed in accordance with the facts as disclosed in the evidence given before the court of inquiry. He felt that any other course of action would be perceived as weakness and in fact impossible in view of the part played by the Minister for Home Affairs, Kevin O'Higgins. Dr McCarthy had written to the Minister as early as the 1st of July, asking him for his help and protection for his wife and two daughters from the fiends in human form who brutally assaulted my daughters. In response, O'Higgins wrote to the President in August, stating that simply as a matter of self-respect, I feel bound to define my position with regard to the Kenmare scandal. He said he could not accept the position that any political exigencies could excuse us in condoning an outrage of that kind if it is shown that the officers of our army were implicated. He went on to say that it was known of in London, and you can imagine the use that will be made of it there, and that many people, both in the army and outside it, regarded it as a test case and realised its significance for the future of the army. Meanwhile, intimidation of the McCarthy's continued. About two months after the attack, the girls and their mother went to the cinema and two army officers came in and sat behind them. One, the brother-in-law of General O'Daly, was drunk and the other was the one positively identified by the sisters of, as one of their assailants. They amused themselves during the performance by asking the girls, what oil do you use for your hair? Is it motor grease? According to Dr. McCarthy, this showed that they knew they were immune from punishment. After this, he took the girls away for a break as they were unable to sleep and were in constant dread of other attacks at night. And my youngest daughter's health is, I fear, permanently injured. Meanwhile, the Judge Advocate General, Kerr Davis, was called to a meeting with the Commander-in-Chief, Richard Mulcahy. He advised that he was completely satisfied that there was a case against the three officers. However, Mulcahy said he felt that O'Daly was innocent, that he had interviewed him personally and asked him straight, man to man, whether he had been concerned in the assault on the Mrs McCarthy and that O'Daly had assured him that he had not. He said he was disposed to accept O'Daly's assurance and to take no military action, to which David said the effect of such a course of action on discipline generally was bound to be bad. Mulcahy then asked if he could see any way out of the difficulty. David suggested consulting Hugh Kennedy, the Attorney General, as the officers concerned could be prosecuted for assault in the ordinary criminal courts, and the question whether any such prosecution should be taken would have to be decided by Kennedy as law advisor or by the government on his advice. Mulcahy did this. 
In his report to the President, Kennedy stated, I have given very serious and anxious attention to the papers laid before me in this case. It is a case of unusual gravity, having regard to the offence alleged to have been committed to the persons who it has sought to implicate in the charge of having perpetrated the outrage alleged and the consequences to one party or the other. So far, so neutral. While his language may be guarded when framing the job at hand, his impartiality soon slips. He states, it is, in his opinion, necessary to reconstruct, reconstruct the atmosphere of the case and see who the complainants are. They are not city people, and their mentality as witnesses and generally must be considered in the light of their own history and environment. We all know the type of Catholic bourgeoisie which existed in the Irish country towns and villages under the British regime. This group had distinctly British leanings because of its social aspirations. It seems clear that the McCarthy's were of this type, and this fact cannot be lost sight of in assessing the evidence support, evidence offered in support of the story. From his point of view, the story of the flogging rests entirely on the evidence of the two girls themselves, while independent evidence was available regarding the greasing of their hair. So who is he inclined to believe? The two young women of this type who were attacked, or an officer whom he describes as having given distinguished service, lasting benefit to his country. It should be noted that Kennedy's assessment of O'Daly's military character is somewhat at odds with the general view of O'Daly's service in Kerry at this time. According to Michael Hopkinson, he was implicated in sinister deeds which occurred in the Kerry command, including general troop and discipline, extreme violence against prisoners, and infamously, his involvement in alleged reprisals such as the Bali CD incident. And so, in the Attorney General's opinion, the accused man had no case to answer. Ernest Blythe, Minister for Local Government, viewed it as merely a case of a couple of tarts getting a few lashes that did them no harm. Even ministers who were more in agreement with O'Higgins than Blythe did not believe the government could proceed to produce an army crisis over a matter which was essentially only an ordinary war incident. Such perceptions of violence against women during this time have led to the dismissal of violent acts such as haircutting, strip searching, as mere ordinary war incidents, thereby setting aside any calls for accountability. What is particularly interesting in this incident is that despite its hope high profile, it did not appear in the national press when it happened. Dr McCarthy himself was very helpful to the government in this regard. He explained that he had refrained from publishing the facts as I was reluctant to embarrass the government and to discredit the army, as I realised the enormous difficulties the government had to contend against. It is also likely he was trying to protect his daughters from wider infamy, as the details of their, their story were widely known in the local area. In fact, the only mention I can find in national papers is in the context of the army inquiry in July 1924, a full year after the incident. This inquiry had been established to look into the indiscipline and mutinous conduct amongst all ranks in the National Army. So despite dramatic headlines such as the Ken Mayer case, grave charges against officers, alleged flogging of doctors' daughters, the women's story was lost in a wider debate which centred on army and government issue, issues. In conclusion, from my reading of the available army correspondence, the judicial response of the army was by the book. The Judge Advocate General remained convinced that the courts martial should proceed. However, the timing of this case proved problematic. When he attempted to convene the courts martial, delays were encountered, and on the 1st of August, he wrote to the Adjutant General, pointing out that after the Defence Forces Act became law, the McCarthy case could not be dealt with by court martial. And so it transpired. 
just explain this, um, with the passing of the Defence Forces Act, members of the forces who were charged with crimes under the now cancelled regulations as to discipline could not be dealt with under the new act as the offences were committed prior to its passing. Regarding the state's, sorry, regarding the state's response, Dr. McCarthy's patience with the government while doing it and the army a huge favour at a very difficult time did not further his daughter's fight for justice. The immediate hue and cries, such as that from Kevin O'Higgins, dissipated once the 1923 Defence Forces Act became law and the government had the Attorney General's opinion. The lack of publicity ensured that they were not called to account for their lack of action and the McCarthys were left fighting on their own. The needs of the state had proven more pressing than the effects of an outrage committed against two young women, an assault which would haunt them for the rest of their lives. Florence and Jessie's voices, along with those of many other women, those who were raped, those who were assaulted, those who were terrorised, were silenced by a male heroic narrative which has celebrated and lionised those who took part in the Irish Revolution. Their story jarred, it just did not fit. Now historians, particularly women historians, are uncovering their stories. In so doing, they are ensuring a more balanced, nuanced and representative history of the Irish Revolution, one which seeks to recognise the contribution and the suffering of all members of Irish society at that time. Echoing Sinead Kennedy's remarks from last week, it is not simply about including women, it is about changing the narrative itself. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Besieged Bodies, Gendered Violence, Sexualities and Motherhood, the Women's History Association of Ireland's annual conference for 2020-2021. You can listen to podcasts of keynotes and many other papers from the conference on historyhub.ie.